Welcome to Tea with PILPG. I'm Paul Williams, the president and founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG for short. Today we will be starting the first half of our mini-series called Adding 3 to 5 Years, where we will be discussing how you can add 3 to 5 years to your professional age by following some basic principles. We will be enjoying a cup of refreshing mint tea. Joining me today are Lauren, Claire, and Nuha. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Thanks, Paul. I'm Lauren, and I'm getting my JD at Harvard Law and an MA in Global Affairs at Yale. I also served for five years in the Air Force before starting school. I'm Claire, and I'm getting my JD at Yale Law School. I've also worked in the past at the Wilson Center and the European Court of Human Rights. Hi, Paul. I'm Noha. I'm studying economics and political science at UMass Amherst, and I also worked with Stand with Libya. Great. Well, welcome. I think you will be perfect subjects for today's talk. The goal of our talk is for you to be able to add three to five years to your professional age in a period of two to three months. Uh, Paul, um, I'm not sure your math's quite right there. <laughs> I mean, how do we possibly add three to five years of professional experience in two months? Well, I was a political theory major undergraduate, so I might not be so good at math. But, as we've discussed, as we've discussed before, there are many, many highly qualified people out there. Many people with relevant work experience to the jobs that they're applying to. And what I'm talking about is how to make yourself stand out from these similarly situated people. I oftentimes run into young professionals who say, well, I'll let my resume stand for itself. I'm qualified. Yes, you are amazingly qualified. So are two dozen other people applying for the same job or seeking the same opportunity. You need to find ways of, of standing out so that future employers, future mentors, those that are trying to make opportunities available for young professionals are excited to have you part of their team. And they're excited to have you part of their team when they can't guess your professional age. And when they look at you and they say, wow, from the resume, I'm thinking just graduated a year or two ago, but from the handshake, the eye contact, their employment-ready uh, persona, the way in which they intellectually engage, I'm sure they've been on the employment field for seven or eight years, and they must have done something before going to undergraduate or before going to law school. And there's four major ways in which you can up your game, so to speak, that you can add three to five years to your professional career if you practice, practice, practice over the next two to three months. The first is professionalism and writing. And notice I don't say a quality writer, a competent writer, a capable writer, but professionalism in writing. And we'll come back and we'll speak about that in a second. Also, your professional presence in public. You are always on, you're always advertising, and there's no better way to add these three to five years than to be a superstar in public because there's so much attention, so much interaction, so many opportunities for discovering mentors, for discovering job possibilities, for discovering interesting things that you want to be engaged in. Then there's the presence in the office. You're in the office every day. Office becomes comfortable. Office becomes like a home. An office isn't your home. It's a professional environment. And if you can demonstrate superstar professionalism in internships and in summer associate positions or in your first few months on the job when the senior partners are trying to figure out who do they want as their special assistant or their special advisor or on their team, that's again how you can leapfrog other young professionals. 
and then becoming a guru at managing up. And this is something that young professionals are often very cautious about doing, but people who've been in the field three to five years are very effective at doing. So for the next two to three months, you dedicate yourselves to becoming phenomenal at managing up. Then when you hit the ground in a new position or a new opportunity, senior professionals assume you've been in the market for at least three to five years because you're so good and so effective at managing up. So Paul, I have a question about the first point. You said good quality writing is not necessarily the same thing as displaying professionalism through writing. What do you mean by that? By your nature, as dynamic young superstars, you will produce high quality writing. It'll be well researched, it'll be articulate, things will be spelled correctly, and it will make sense for the person reading it, be it a senior professional, be it a client, be it somebody in an advocacy-oriented situation. But you also need to be a seasoned professional in the way in which you write. So I have to make sure it's organized and presented well? That's part of it, Claire. You have to think about the fact that you're producing a product that's going to be consumed. Oftentimes, we think of donuts as a product that you consume. We think of soda pop as a product that you consume. But your written material is also a product that's being consumed by others. So not only does it have to be high quality, but it has to be presented in a way that it's easy for a wide variety of, of individuals or for readers to absorb this material. It has to be flawless. Just like your brand as a young professional is dynamic, competent, flawless, your writing has to be dynamic, it has to be competent, and it has to be flawless. Proofread, proofread, proofread. Practice, practice, practice. Always assume that your product, even if it's a quick draft, even if it's an overnight assignment, that it will be shared by others. Because if it's not shared by others, or shared with others, then it wasn't really any good. No matter how quickly you do it, if it is good, it will be shared by others. And others won't know that you did it in three hours or as an overnight assignment or as a crash Friday afternoon assignment. They'll assume you spent a week on it. So even when you do a crash assignment, it needs to look like and feel like it was done over the course of a week, that it was organized well, it was presented well, there are no errors. One of the sad things about errors is that everybody remembers the error. You get it right nine times, and you make a mistake once, and then someone says, oh, well, how was that memo? Oh, it was pretty good, but they split their infinitives. You may have only split one infinitive, and it may have been a brilliant memo, but I gotta tell you, unfortunately, it's just the nature of the way the human mind works that you'll remember that error. And in even giving praise to a legal product among their peers, a senior professional can't help herself or himself from noting that, oh, well, there were split infinitives, or there were a couple typos, or it needed to be proofread better, and then you find out there was one typo or one, uh, one misspelling. So it's a bit of a curse, but always, always, no matter what the deadline is, spend that extra time proofreading. Paul, since I'm an intern, I don't write any legal memos. Does this mean I'm off the hook for this one? <laughs> Newha, what do you think? Um, probably not. <laughs> yes, you're not. If your fingers are moving on an electronic device, you're writing. If it's a live tweet, if it's a blog post, 
if it's an email, if it's a legal memo, if it's a grant proposal, it's writing, writing, writing. Get really good at writing. As someone once said, there's no sense in practicing bad habits. You should only, if you're going to do a tennis practice, if you're going to do a golf swing, if you're going to write, you always, always want to be at the top of your game. If you do a haphazard golf swing and you practice that way, that becomes your golf swing. If you do haphazard live tweeting, emails, grant proposals, but you're going to do really good at writing that project report or that legal memo, you're not because you practiced bad writing. Every day is game day, no matter what you're writing. Let's take, for instance, an email that I received the other day. I sent a request to a young professional to take a look at something and to share their thoughts with me. And they wrote back, great, I'd love to. I'll look at it tonight or tomorrow. Terrible writing. They think they're being responsive. Great. I'll look at it tonight, after hours, I'll work really hard, or tomorrow. And I'm thinking, well, I want these ideas so I can incorporate it into a legal product or to, to note that I'm sending a client. Is my junior professional going to look at it? Or are they going to share some ideas? Or are they going to dig into it? I don't want them to look at it. I may say, hey, can you take a look? But I don't actually mean for them to look at it. I mean for them to actually action it and do things with it. Well, tonight, okay, I have a meeting with a client. Um, I have some other social obligations, and I want to watch reruns of Gilligan's Island. Um, should I clear my calendar because they might do it tonight and get back to me, and then I can turn it around to a client? Or are they going to do it tomorrow, which is a whole different window of time, given the time zones with my client and things along those lines. And is this a sign of enthusiasm because they'll do it tonight or maybe tomorrow? Or is it a sign of disinterest because, yeah, I'll get around to it tonight or tomorrow? Now. Some poor junior person spent five seconds writing this email, great, I'll look at it tonight or tomorrow, and we just spent two and a half minutes dissecting all the ways in which this email could be interpreted in the negative light. But that's what people do, unfortunately. They read your emails, and oftentimes they'll look to interpret it in positive light, but people are human beings, and they react in various ways to the written communication that you send them. So you want to be thinking about the person who's receiving it and how she may interpret it or how he may act upon it. So there's two ways of doing this. Always read your emails out loud because that's what the person does when they receive your emails. When people read your emails, we all have, or maybe it's just me, little voices in your head. Um, I'm a Gemini, so I have two voices in my head. And at least one of those voices is reading the email out loud to me as I open up the email and I read it. Basically, I talk to myself. And so you want to read your emails out loud before you send them, because that's how they're going to be interpreted and how they're going to be heard by the person who's, who's receiving it. You also want to throw in all of those niceties that our parents taught us to do when we write notes, but somehow when it's an email, it's not writing, it's, it's interfacing with a computer. You want to add the salutations. You always want to say thank you. I have this annoying habit of always thanking people for sending me some email, and then I give them a response. But I figure at least my email starts with, thank you, 
I may then go on to disagree, to argue, to edit, to redline whatever they sent, but at least their first reaction is, dear Mr. Smith, okay, it's formal, thank you for your email. Nobody ever thanks me for emails. Okay, they thank you for the email, and then you wander on, and you provide whatever type of commentary, and then you always provide some type of closing, looking forward to your comments, warm regards, something that taps it out, not just dot, 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 and end it. There's also one secret to being an amazing email guru, and that is one thought per email, and make sure the thought matches the subject line. In today's world of hundreds of emails and hundreds of documents, many people organize their files in their email, and they organize it by their subject lines. And so if you want to facilitate professional communication, if you want to practice professional communication, you only send one thought or one question per email. And if someone sends you three questions in an email, you break it down into three response emails. I only answer the questions that I want to answer when I get an email. There are three different questions that come in an email. I need to move this email. I pick the easy question, answer it, and hit reply, and then delete the email, and I'm done. And the individuals trying to seek to get questions from me don't always get all the information that they need, but I'm in this mood of processing emails. And so you get it out the door, or you, maybe you forget to answer the other questions. Sometimes a question you can answer right away. Everyone has their rules for email management. The answer it right away, think about it for a minute, or file it. But if you've got three different questions, and one's right away, one's a minute, and one's a file, what's the person going to do? They're going to file all three of your questions into the deal with it later box, which means maybe, maybe not deal with a later box. So become very, very professional, very, very efficient at using email, even as an intern. So when you do go to law school, or you do get your master's, and you're writing legal memos, you're writing law reports, you're writing policy papers, you've got that skill set of every word matters, tone matters, and you're being responsive to, to your audience. Okay, well, Paul, that seems doable when it comes to writing memos or sending emails, but then I have the time to read over it, think about it, read it out loud to myself. But what about when it comes face-to-face? -face? I mean, I can't practice in my head. It's all spur of the moment. So what you're talking about is, essentially, Lauren, professionalism in public. And when you're downtown and there's a spare-of-the-moment professional interaction. Yeah, exactly. I can't sit there quietly and think about it in my head, wait 30 seconds, and then respond. There is nothing spur of the moment in professionalism. Prepare for every public interaction. Prepare for every event, every activity. There is this notion, there is this culture that a 9 o'clock meeting starts at 9 o'clock. It doesn't actually start at 9 o'clock. It starts at 5 minutes to 9. And sometimes it even starts the evening before because you're thinking about this meeting so that you can go in and you can be super professional because if your watch is off, if there's a little bit of traffic, and if you stop at Starbucks and you show up after 9 o'clock, you're dead in the water in terms of professionalism. Never show up to a meeting late with a warm cup of Starbucks because everyone knows that you prioritized your caffeine buzz and Starbucks over the substance of that meeting. Now, if you do go to Starbucks and there's a long line and you end up late, dispose of your evidence before you go into the room. Even bumping into a senior professional on the street is not a spur-of-the-moment encounter because you have your business cards, because you never leave the office without your business cards. 
you have your personal elevator speech stored away in one of your short-term memory files because you never leave the office without your professional elevator speech tuned on. And you know your company's elevator speech because you use it every time you have a professional interaction. This happened to Mark and I on our way back from lunch this afternoon. We bumped into two other colleagues of mine. And on the street corner at 17th and H, we did the four-way business card swap. <laughs> we did the elevator speeches. And they pitched a summer associate for next summer to, to PILPG. All of this was spur of the moment. But when I went to introduce Mark, he had his elevator speech. He had his business card. My two colleagues who were coming across uh, 17th Street, they business cards, their elevator speeches rolled off, and they made a pitch to get one of their colleagues hired by PILPG, all by literally bumping into one another on the street corner. Also, never underestimate physical appearance and dress. You can always take off your jacket, you can always take off your tie, but if you're the only one in the room without a jacket, or the only male in the room without a tie, you stand out. And that's not what you want to be noticed for. As young professionals, you're adding three to five years to your professional career. You're not subtracting three to five years from your professional career. Backpack, burn it. <laughs> Go find a briefcase. Oversized carry-all purse that your shoes fit in, ditch it. Use professional clothing, professional accessories, <laughs> and present the way that other senior professionals present. Mute your cell phone ring. It's amazing the number of clever and exciting cell phone rings that we attach to our quirky uncles and aunts and bizarre family members. That's great for the weekend of the beach with your family. It's not so great when the Star Wars theme starts playing in the middle of a professional meeting and you explain, oh, Uncle Wally's calling, isn't this nice? Um, or the Gilligan's Island assessment of theme song starts to play. You want to up your game in all of those ways that are unexpected for young professionals. Because what they'll say is, oh, that's cute, the Star Wars ring, or oh, that's cute, whatever type of ring you have on your phone, that's young professionals nowadays. And they've just put you in that group of the other 25 qualified young professionals that are seeking amazing opportunities, not in the group of two or three that don't act their professional age. Whenever you go to an event, Prep for the event. Know who's speaking, know the subject, and create your questions before you go. We've talked in other podcasts about asking questions at downtown events, and oftentimes the response is, well, how can I ask that first question? Because the speaker stops, and then I've got to think of a question and ask it, and I've been spending my time listening and following. You know what the foreign minister of Armenia is going to say. You know what the member of parliament of Germany Reichstag is going to say, by and large, prep your questions beforehand, the evening beforehand, and then rehearse those questions in your mind during the presentation, and then when they say, are there questions, you raise your hand. They call on you, and then the question naturally comes out. And they say, wow, that person doesn't look like they're 28 years old and an early career professional. They look more like they're a law student. But whoa, first one up, articulate presentation, and a really good question they're pretty professionally old for their age. That's the type of impression that you want to leave. And then because you're so amazing, they're all going to ask you for your business card afterward.
How can I be prepared for potential employers to follow up after I give them my business card? You'd be amazed at how much professional stalking exists out there in the real world. <laughs> LinkedIn, Instagram, professional Facebook pages, it's out there. Use it to your advantage. Three years ago, we would have had a conversation about how you scrub your social media of all of your undergraduate or your middle school or your high school antics. But since none of you have any of those antics on your professional media, the conversation is all about how do you up your game? How do you use your professional Facebook page to up your game? How do you use your LinkedIn page? And the way you do that is you go and you search out individuals who are 10 years your senior professionally and you do what they do on their LinkedIn page or on their social media. And when that little voice is in your head, the other little voice, not the one that reads emails, but the other one says, oh, but I'm not accomplished enough, I'm not senior enough to put pictures of me in action on my LinkedIn page. Or, well, I'm still an undergrad or I'm still a law student, how can people be endorsing me for my skills on public policy or on foreign affairs or on research or on writing? Send that little voice on a canoe trip out into the lake and embrace what the other senior professionals have done. So that someone looks at your page, they're not going to think you're chronologically three to five years older, but they'll say, wow, for someone that's an undergrad or someone that's a law student or someone that's a law fellow fresh out of school, they've done a lot of amazing things, which they've described in the same way that a young professional who's three to five years out would describe. And so they must have learned those skills, those talents that others have learned. And I can hire an entry-level person that operates like a fifth-year associate, sign her up. That's the kind of impression that you want to leave on your social media. So don't worry about the potholes. I'm completely confident you have all paved in your potholes of those crazy pictures from undergrad days or from the vacation days. Think about how you build a highway on your social media and not a country road. Think about how you present your amazingness through all of these tools, your live tweeting that you do very professionally, very consistently, your LinkedIn page, and then your professionalized Facebook page. This concludes the first half of our mini-series, Adding Three to Five Years. Tune in next week to hear the second half of this series, where we will talk about professionalism in the office and managing up. If you would like to know more, please follow us on Facebook or Twitter or on our website, pilpg.org. If you have a tea or discussion suggestion, let us know on Twitter with hashtag tea with PILPG. Until next time, this is Tea with PILPG, brewing excellence around the world.